This week, I got on a Zoom call, which kind of feels like a lot of weeks uh, in the last few weeks, the last few months. And as I got on the Zoom call, I came on video, my mic turned on, and the first person who greeted me said, hey, Scott, how you doing? And, and you know, like I do, that a lot of times people ask us, how are you doing? And I don't mean this in a cynical uh, voice, but I am a little bit cynical about it. I think people ask sometimes, how are you doing? And they don't really want to know. Or they're not prepared if we're really truthful. And I was feeling just a little bit transparent. Um, It had been a long day. And so I just said, I'm weary. I'm weary. And as I had that conversation and repeated that conversation throughout my week, I heard about so many experiences of other people who were feeling the same thing. And I made a list of the things that I heard that people We're weary about this week, including myself. I'm weary after a spring of being at home. I'm weary of nonstop stories of tragedy and pain. I'm weary of fear, anxiety, depression, and overwhelm. I'm weary of watching people of my race be unjustly killed. I'm weary of watching my peers in uniform be killed in the line of duty. I'm weary of being manipulated by other people's agendas. I'm weary of being isolated and feeling alone. Weary, weary, weary. And as I listened to those stories, and I thought about my own experience my mind was drawn to a familiar passage in the scriptures which just felt so connected to the weariness I was feeling. In Psalm 13, we read these words, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Maybe, like me, you can relate to those words. Maybe over the last few days, the last few weeks, you found yourself crying out to God, saying, How long, Lord? How long are we going to face these problems? How long are we going to watch these stories? How long are we going to see these videos? How long are we going to face this pain? How long is this going to remain in our world? How long? And if you've been saying that phrase, how long, for too long, then you can relate to the weariness. The sad part is that for most of us, we don't actually know the rest of that psalm. We know that phrase, how long, O Lord, Well, we don't know how the rest of the psalm goes. And here's how the rest of the psalm goes, the other four lesser known verses. The psalmist continues, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Let my enemy say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I want to begin this message today in this place. Because I know so many of us are weary 
as we go through a world that is trying to make sense of injustice, racism, murder, rioting, protesting, division, discord, and so much pain. And today, I want us to look to the one who loves us with a steadfast love and who is with us in the midst of that weariness. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you know weariness all too well. You felt that weariness as you carried the weight of our sin to the cross. And so we come to you today, many of us, weary and heavy laden. And we look to you and your steadfast love. We look to you as a God who is not ignorant of our pain, but who sees it and who knows it and who has worked and is working to make all things new, to let justice flow like a river and to take all that is broken and make it whole. We pray that you'd meet us in this place today and you'd speak to us powerfully through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're in a series today on the book of James called James Practical Wisdom for Life's Adventures. Now you might think that the word adventure is a light term, but one of the definitions in the dictionary for an adventure is a typically hazardous experience. And so sometimes adventures are fun and safe and great. And sometimes they're terrifying and scary. And according to the definition, they're typically hazardous. And that's often what life looks like. It's a typically hazardous adventure, a typically hazardous journey, a typically, typically hazardous road that we walk on that we need wisdom for. And so throughout this summer, we're going to be in the book of James looking for practical wisdom from God. And if you missed the first message in the series and you don't know who James is, what this book is about or where it comes from, we'd encourage you to go on our website, prescottcornerstone.com slash sermons and check out that first message. But today, as we continue in the first chapter of the book of James, here's the big idea that we're going to talk about this morning. Weary believers, and there's many of us today, weary believers endure trials and resist temptations when we focus on the source of our strength. Weary believers endure trials and resist temptations when we focus on the source of our strength. And we're going to learn that lesson. We're going to see that principle played out in the second section of James that we're going to look at. James chapter 1 verses 9 through 18. So if you have a Bible, open it up, turn it on, go towards the back of your Bible. And nudged, wedged in between Hebrews and 1 Peter is the book of James. And I want to encourage you as we get ready to come back together on the 21st, some of us, I want to encourage you wherever you are watching from to open your Bible, to stand in honor of God's word. And I'm going to grab mine and we're going to read together this morning. My friend Susanna is going to keep us moving. James chapter one, beginning in verse nine says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. 
and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man, though, who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Amen. Wherever you are, you can be seated. Today, in the time that we have, I want to share with you four words to weary believers. Four words, four messages, four encouragements to weary believers. And if you've never been weary or you're not weary today, just hang on. You'll get there one day. But this is what James writes to a group of Christians who are scattered by persecution and who are wearied as a result. And here's what he says, the first word. He says this, to remain steadfast during trials. James calls us and reminds us that even when we are weary, we are to remain steadfast during those trials. Now, James talked last week to us in the first part of James 1 about trials. And he said, consider it or count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds because you know that the perseverance, endurance, steadfastness, that process perfects, matures, and completes your faith. And he's continuing to talk about these trials in this next section. And he says, hey, when you're facing those kind of trials, remain steadfast. Don't give up. Don't give in. And specifically, he's talking about two different groups of people who are affected and impacted by trials. In this passage, he talks about poor Christians and rich Christians. From the very beginning, the church included people who are very wealthy And very poor. From the very beginning, one of the first conflicts that the Apostle Paul deals with in the book of 1 Corinthians, also in other books, is the disparity of wealth in the church and how sometimes that leads to a disparity of attitude and love within the church. And in this passage, if you have your Bible open, James is very clear that those who are poor in this life should look forward to their exaltation in the kingdom of God and should not consider their station in life today their permanent station in life. And he says to those who are rich, do not be arrogant because one day all the riches that you have in this life will be taken away. You can't take it with you into your life with God after this life on earth. 
And he challenges both poor and rich to consider a powerful question. What is the source of our hope? Is the source of our hope that one day we will get more wealth? Or is the hope of of our life that we will be able to hold on and grow our wealth? No, what James is saying is you can remain steadfast in the trial if your focus is not on what you don't have that you wish you had or on keeping what you had and your fear of losing it, but if your hope is in the one who actually provides that wealth and gives you the ability to increase that wealth, you can remain steadfast. You can endure. You can persevere. This is why in James 1.12 he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test... When he's endured the trial, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. There is this indication from James that what we do in this life matters, that God is watching, and that we will be rewarded. Now, this phrase, the crown of life, appears in multiple places in the New Testament, and it is a subject of not a small amount of discussion by Bible scholars and commentators. Some people believe it is literally a crown that we are given, almost like the one you might see if you watched a medieval movie with King Arthur or King Richard and they put on a a crown. Some people believe it's a metaphor for the life that we are going to experience with God eternally. That that is the crown, that is the reward, but regardless the meaning of the words, the message is clear in James 1.12. And the message is this, that God sees you going through the trial that you are in today, that God will strengthen you and enable you to remain steadfast. And once you have remained steadfast and endured the trial, God will reward you. That's the encouragement to those of us who are in a trial today. God sees you. He totally knows what you're going through. He's going to strengthen you as you look to him. And he's going to reward you once you have endured it. Now that subject of reward is something I want to camp out on for a second. Because I know that this is a subject that a lot of us think about when we turn our attention from this life on earth to our life after death with God. And many of us begin to think about the rewards and the things that we will experience in heaven and our eternal life with God beyond. And that's one of the places where that crown of life changes. And when I hear people talk about heaven, many times the things that I hear them talking about are the crown that I'm going to get, the mansion that I'm going to have, the streets of gold that I'm going to walk. And I want to issue a warning today. And that warning is this. Beware of seeing your future life with God through the lens of your present sin. Beware of looking towards your future life with God beyond your physical death through the lens of your present sin. Because so many of the descriptions that I hear that people are excited about once their trials in this life are done and they are with God in heaven, what their vision of heaven sounds like 
is a greedy vision of heaven that looks like Robin Leach's The Lifestyle of the Rich and Famous or MTV's Cribs or what you see when you scroll through your Instagram feed from influencers. And if our hope that's causing us to be able to endure our present trials is a greedy view of heaven, is a sinful view of the future, if we're looking for all of that bling and we forget that the real treasure is God, we're deceiving ourselves. See, if your vision of heaven and what you're excited about takes five or six or seven or eight or ten things to get around to God, then your vision of the future is being marked far more by your sin than it is your faith. I'm not against mansions. I'm not against streets of gold. I'm not against crowns. As long as those are secondary to the real prize and the real treasure, which is God. And that's why I want to remind you that if you are enduring this present trial you are in and you're trying to remain steadfast for a thing, you're not going to remain steadfast. Because a thing is not going to get you through it. Only God will. That's the first word to a weary believer. Here's the second word. Beware of temptation's traps. Beware of temptation's traps. In James chapter 1, James goes to the heart of the matter and he begins to shift from talking about trials to talking about temptations. Here's what he says in James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And what what James is going to begin to do here in verses 13 and 14 is draw some distinctions as he talks about temptations that are different from what he's been talking about with trials. And here's the first distinction that he makes. He describes trials as these external forces as opposed to temptations which are internal battles. When you're going through a trial, the way that you know you're in a trial is you're facing all of these external forces, these external difficulties, this external opposition. But you can know that you are not in fact in a trial, but you are in a temptation because the battle begins within. It's an internal thing. That's why James says that that when you're tempted, that temptation source is you. It is yours and my own sinful desires that are at the heart of temptation. Trials, they can come for no seeming reason externally. Look at the story of of Abraham in Genesis 22 when God tested him and put him through the trial of saying, will you even trust me with your son Isaac? In Job chapter 1 and beyond, when God tests Job, that's an external thing. Temptation? No, that's an internal thing. I love what Tony Evans says about the difference between trials and temptations. He says, God uses trials to develop us, but Satan uses temptations to destroy us. 
God uses trials to develop us. Satan uses temptation to destroy us. And that's another good distinction. Is that trials are tools that God uses. And temptations are tools that Satan uses. God is trying to develop us. If you think back to James 1, 2, 3, and 4. God's trying to develop us into people that are whole and mature and complete. Satan, on the other hand, is trying to use our temptations and our sinful desires to destroy us. What does 1 Peter say? Satan is like a roaring lion prowling around seeking someone to devour, seeking someone to destroy. That's what a temptation is. It's a tool that Satan uses to destroy you. And then finally, third, trials were called to endure them, but temptations were called to resist them. If you resist a trial, you very well may find yourself resisting something God is trying to do or use in your life. But if you just try to endure a temptation, you're going to find yourself defeated. And this is why it's so important for us to try to decipher the difference. Is this thing that I am in a trial or is this thing I am in a temptation? And the one way that I know how to do that It's to shift my focus from blaming everybody else and being angry at everybody else and looking at myself. Years ago, I read a book by a guy named Dale Burke. And there's only two quotes I remember from the whole book. And this is one of them. He said this, it's a lot easier to look out a window to blame others than it is to look in a mirror to examine yourself. It's a lot easier to look out the window and blame other people and see their own brokenness and their own sin and point out their flaws than it is to look in a mirror to examine yourself. Over the last two weeks, as unrest and division has erupted in our country, just, I'm going to mess with you for a second. This is the question I'm asking myself. As all that's been happening, and you're watching that on the news, and you're watching that on social media, have you spent more time looking out the window? Or have you spent more time looking in the mirror? It is way easier to look out the window, to blame others and point out their flaws, than it is to look in the mirror and ask God to examine your own heart. Because here's what James says happens in your heart and in my heart. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's what happens when you're tempted. And, and James is alluding to some things that I think make sense to many of us because of our past experience. He uses a word there. Each person is lured. Well, what is a lure? A lure is something that you use when you fish that is shiny, that is alluring, that is attractive, that gets the attention of the fish so that the fish will bite into the hook and be caught. And James is saying that each of us is tempted when we are lured and enticed, not by someone else, but by our own desire. In essence, he's saying we bait the hook with a lure And then we lure and entice and catch ourselves. And there's nobody else to blame. I was thinking about this and I I had an even more powerful image than a lure. I had the image of a trap. 
And uh, I want to thank my friend Eric for loaning me his trap. Our team is terrified because they're afraid I'm going to snap my hand with this. But in essence, what James is saying is he's saying that temptation is a trap. And the only problem is, is that we're not some weak, you know, misled victim in this trap. No, he's saying we set the trap. We put the lure in there. We we used it to entice ourselves. And then... We trapped ourselves. And that's what James is saying. He's saying, beware. Beware of temptation's traps. Because you're not above this. In fact, every time this trap catches you, you have no one to blame but the person you see in the mirror. Because it's our desire that lures us and entices us. And James says, beware of temptations. Traps. Number three. James says, the genealogy of sin destroys us. The genealogy of sin destroys us. He begins to work out the process of how this works. In verse 15, he says, then desire the desire that trapped us. Then when desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Let me kind of illustrate this using my own family. So this is the genealogy of the savages. That's Hoyt, my dad. Then there's Scott. And then there's my oldest son, Weston. That's the genealogy of our family. Hoyt gave birth to Scott. Actually, my Donna gave birth to Scott, but Hoyt was there for that. And then Wesley came from Scott. Here's what James is saying. He's saying, lust gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, sin gives birth to death. And so you might think that sin is not that significant. But when you play out the genealogy of sin, what you get is death. And James is trying to encourage us and warn us. And what he's saying is don't underestimate lustful desires. And lust is a word that we often use just in a sexual context. But but lust is bigger than that. Lust is wanting anything that you know is wrong. Either in its context or in its manner. You can lust after a job. You can lust after a person. You can lust after a car or a vacation or a house or a relationship. And what James is saying is don't underestimate the power of those lustful desires. And don't underestimate your own brokenness and sin and capability. There are so many of us that I think, man, I would never be so stupid. To fall for a trap like that. So I'm, I'd never be so stupid. That there's no way I'd, ne- I'd struggle with that. You look out the window. You see somebody else's sin and go, man, I would never ever become that. Friends, you are in danger. You're in danger. Because you're not any more than that person is. 
You're just as flawed, broken, and sinful as they are. I'll never forget years ago, I was sitting in a conference listening to Rick Warren, who's the pastor of Saddleback Church in Southern California, one of the largest churches in the country. His book, Purpose Driven Life, sold more copies than any nonfiction book in history next to the Bible. And Warren, I mean, he's about as successful in his field as he could get. And he told a story in that conference about a file that he keeps in his office. And he said it's a very large file. He said, and in that file, he puts every story he hears, and he's been doing it for decades, every story he hears about a pastor like him who falls. Whether it's a moral failure, a sexual failure, a financial failure, a pride and arrogance issue, but they lose their influence and ministry, and he puts it in there, and he calls it his scary file. He said to us, he said, I open that file like twice a year and spend an afternoon just reading through it. And here's why he said that. He said, you're not above it, and I'm not above it. You're not above that, pastors in this conference, and I'm not above it. Friends, you're not above the trap, and I'm not above the trap. And if you think you're above the trap, friends, today you are in danger. Because you have no idea how far you may have gone down that trap's road. James says, the genealogy of sin leads to death, so do not be deceived. Don't be deceived by Satan and don't deceive yourself. Here's the good news though. The genealogy of sin leads to death, but the genealogy of God gives us life. The genealogy of God gives us life. Here's the last section we looked at today, verses 17 and 18. James says, every good gift and every perfect gift is given from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We just saw that lust produces sin, and sin produces death. That's the genealogy of sin. Here's the genealogy of God. Our heavenly Father brings forth salvation, and that salvation gives birth to life. And not just life in this world, that beating heart life, but full, rich, abundant life with God, both here in this life and to come. And James is saying, in contrast to the experience you know where your lust led to sin and your sin produced death, you need to become aware of the genealogy that you are now a part of because you're part of the family of God, that your heavenly father has made your salvation possible, not just so that you can be with him eternally, but so that you can begin to experience that kind of life right now. And that's why he says we're the first fruits. We're supposed to be a preview. We're supposed to be experiencing a sneak preview and picture of what is to come. So, 
If this life is so new to us, how do we steward this life? And that's what James shows us in this text. How do we steward this life? He says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming from the Father of lights. So if you're going to steward this life, if you're going to experience this life, if you're going to get to know this life as well as you know the genealogy of sin, the first thing you have to do is focus on God's goodness. Focus on God's goodness. Every good and perfect gift is from God. What that means is that every good thing in your life, ultimately you can trace it back to God. And so instead of focusing on the lust and the things that you want that you don't have, focus on God's goodness and how it has led to every good gift that you do have. Focus on God's goodness. James continues, he says, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We live in a world where it seems like everything is changing or everything has changed. And so to a people who were experiencing something like that, James says also, focus on God's faithfulness. We live in a world where the one constant is change. And James says, in that world, you can focus on all that you've lost or all you don't understand or all that's changing. Or you can focus on God's faithfulness in whom there is not even a shadow of change. Focus on God's faithfulness. Verse 18 says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. We also need to focus on God's word. There are so many of us that spend way more time. We spend 10 to 15 times a day consuming social media and our cable news network of choice. We spend 10 to 15 times that or more than we do on God's word. I was talking to some pastors this week. And I'm convinced most people that I know are being discipled by their social media feed and their cable news network of choice more than they are God's word. And the fruit shows it. So focus on God's word. If you want to see a situation the way God sees it, you will not get that by just going through your social media feed and watching your favorite cable news network. You will only get that from God's word. So focus on God's word. Finally, James says that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You got to focus on God's plan. And you and I are part of God's plan. We are part of his plan to show the world what life with him looks like. And so at a time where you go, man, is anything under control right now? Is anybody in charge right now? Does God know what he's doing right now? You focus on the fact that God has a plan and guess what? He wants to include you and me in it and he wants to use us to reveal what he wants to do for the whole world. Now, I want to help us to walk those things out in really practical ways. And so there's some next steps I want you to note. If you're taking notes, those are all there for you. Here's the first one. This week, I want to encourage you to look in the mirror and identify the sinful desires you need to resist with the Holy Spirit's help. It's going to be hard to look in the mirror. It's going to be way easier to look out the window. But I want to challenge you. Look in the mirror this week. Identify the sinful desires you need to resist with the Holy Spirit's help. About 80 years ago, a newspaper article was written in England. 
And the title of the article was, What's Wrong with the World? I could have told you an article was written this week, and you would have believed me with that, with, that, with that title. What's wrong with the world? And back before there was Facebook, and you could just tell the world what you thought, you had to write a letter to the editor of a newspaper and wait for that editor to pick your response for the world to read your thoughts. And there was an author named G.K. Chesterton who replied to that article with a very short note. He referenced the title of the article, What's Wrong with the world. And here's what his response was. Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Friends, there's a lot that's wrong with our world. But until we look in the mirror and we can answer the question, what's wrong with the world? I am. Nothing's going to change. The problem isn't out there. The problem is right here, in here. Until this changes, that'll never change. Number two, look in God's face and focus on him. You're going to look in the mirror and identify those sinful desires within you that you're going to resist with the Holy Spirit's power. And then you're going to look in God's face and focus on him. You say, Scott, that sounds really nebulous and spiritual. What does that look like practically? Let me walk you through what that looks like. If you're looking at God's face and focus on him, I would encourage you to use your life, the things that you've been through and experienced, and God's word and ask the following questions. How has God been good to you? How has God been good to you? Write those things down. Number two, how has God been faithful to you? What has God promised you? And then number four, what are God's plans for you? And once you write down your answers to these questions, you look at God's face and you focus on these things. That, yeah, you know what? This has been a hard year, but God's been good to you. Yeah, you know, you've, you've lost some things along the way, but God's been faithful to you. You've not seen it all come to pass yet, but there are some promises that God has made to you. And there are some places where it's hard to see it, but God has said that he has a plan for you. And you focus your heart on that. And you move forward focused on that. And then number three, I want to encourage you to memorize James 1.17 as a reminder of the foundation of our focus. You say, Scott, we covered a lot of scripture today. What's James 1.17? James 1.17 is this, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. You can get that as a wallpaper for your phone at the link on the screen. Because the foundation that we're going to go through this on is, is not our politics. It's not our experience. It's not our opinions. It's God. And that he has not changed. There's not even a shadow of change in him. And so we go forward based upon him and him alone. And we resist temptations and we endure trials because he is the source of our strength. And he's never failed us. And he won't fail us. That's how we navigate this adventure that we find ourselves in today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can come to you and cry out to you when we're weary. 
that you don't chastise us for saying, how long, Lord? That you don't beat us down because we thought the problem was out there when actually the problem was in here. And even amidst all of that knuckle-headed thinking, Father, even though we've been caught by the traps we set ourselves, you offer us even more grace. So you don't have to be afraid to look in the mirror because we know we're not going to find anything that separates us from you. And we thank you that there is nothing that can separate us from your love. I believe, Jesus, there's people you've brought to this stream right now this morning who need to hear that message and who need to experience that reality. They've been trapped by their own temptation. They've been destroyed by their own sin. Their sin has destroyed and wrecked the lives of other people. And today they're wondering if there is grace for them too. And if that's you, then right now I want to invite you to experience a love and a grace that is greater than your sin. I want to invite you to experience an invitation that cannot be revoked. If you'd like to become part of God's family and experience love, forgiveness, grace, and a second chance, then I want to encourage you to pray this prayer with me right now. Heavenly Father, I've made a mess of things. My sin has destroyed me and it's destroyed the lives of other people. I know I don't deserve your grace, but I need it. Thank you for dying on the cross and taking a penalty that was mine. Thank you for being crushed for my sin. Forgive my sin. Heal my wounds. Make me a new person. I need your grace today. I want to follow you and trust you. Show me how. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer with me this morning, we'd encourage you to pull out your phone and text the word Jesus to 928-288-5490. Text the word Jesus to 928-288-5490. Several of our pastors are manning that number. They would love to speak to you this morning. I'd love to celebrate with you the fact that God's grace is greater than any of the traps that our enemy sets for us.